be on. I'm gonna redo that. Wrong, wrong outfit, sorry, okay. <laughs> well, tonight my question is, what type of person are you? Oh, this is gonna get personal. <laughs> no. There's lots of different kinds of people, but you know, we're all kind of the same, right? We all bleed red, but turns out we bleed different kinds of red, yeah. I mean, I went to the blood donor place and they were like, what type of blood are you? I was like, red? <laughs> She's like, you, you A, B, A, B, O. I'm like, I'm, I think it's A, B caffeinated. <laughs> <clears throat> but what is this thing about blood and different types of blood? Well, it turns out that a lot of parts of our body, scientists have figured out how to recreate or to replace with something or move from, you know, they'll grow it here and put it in. They, it's amazing what they've been able to do. And yet, blood is still something that scientists have not figured out a way to replicate. You can't, let's just drain the blood out and put some oil in and get it going. You, you have to have blood. And it turns out if you wanna get blood for somebody who needs more blood, you have to get it from somebody else. They have to donate some of their blood. And this was something that was researched hundreds of years ago. First it started out with, let's take some animal blood and give it to you, and that was not good. And then they started trying to donate blood from one person to another person who needed some blood because of, of a cut that they had. And that also seemed to cause a lot of problems. In some cases, it even resulted in death to the point where some countries, and this is hundreds of years ago, um, said that's against the law. You cannot take blood from somebody and give it to someone else. It's too dangerous. And we didn't really know why, but it's dangerous. Well, it took a, a couple hundred years and some scientists started doing some more research. And a surgeon even saved a dying woman who had lost a lot of blood and they got some blood from someone else and they were able to get it in her and she recovered. And it was kind of this big moment. But unfortunately, still, a lot of these, these attempts would end in not a good way where something bad would happen. So what is going on? Can't you just take this person's blood and give it to this person. It would save so many lives if we could do that. Well, we're gonna talk about a gentleman named Car Carl Landsteiner. And in the 1800s, late 1800s, he was working on this problem. What is the deal with the blood? Can't we mix blood safely? Can we take this person's blood, give it to this person safely? Well, he did an experiment where he took his blood and samples of five other people and he put them in this contraption that spins really fast. So he put the blood in these test tubes and it spins really fast. So the heavier parts in the blood would go to the bottom and it would separate out. Turns out your blood is red because of these little red blood cells. And they, they, they're kind of the heaviest thing in your blood. And so if you spin it fast enough, the red blood cells will be separated. And when you pull out the test tube, you'll see red on the bottom and then you'll see a lot of clearish liquid on top that's not red. And then there's a little line in between that's not red either. Well, what he did was he took some of the red blood cells from the bottom of this person's test tube, and he took some of the 
that little line in the middle from this person, and in another test tube, he mixed them. And in this one, it worked. The blood looked fine. So he got this other person, and he took some blood from them and mixed it with some from that, that little line in the center with another person, and this time it got all gelled, and it started to clot or look like a big blood clot. Something was happening. So wait a minute. So these people's blood can mix, but these can't? And he started to do more tests and found that different people had different kinds of blood, and they would or would not mix. And if you have something like that second one inside of you where the blood starts mixing and clotting and getting all gelled and not flowing smoothly, you're going to have problems that could even be fatal. So what's going on? Well, he discovered that on the blood cells, there were these, now there's different kinds of protein on and inside blood cells, these red blood cells. In fact, there's one that bonds and grabs oxygen, and that's how it carries oxygen through your body. But there's one right on the outside of blood cells called antigens. And these blood cell uh, proteins are really important. And it turns out they are your identification to the warriors. You have warriors. I mean, you've got an army. I am an army, yes. Okay? <laughs> turns out these, these other cells called white, blood ce white cells, and you can, that, you know, that little line I talked about right above the blood cells when he separated it, the red blood cells, that's where those white warrior cells were. And basically, they patrol your body, and they're looking for invaders. And when they hit into a red blood cell, they're like, hey, who is that? Who are you? Identify yourself. And the red blood cells say, look at my antigens. It's me. It's me. And they're like, hey, high five. Carry on. Carry on. Okay. <laughs> and they keep searching. Okay? And it turns out that your blood cells have those antigens, but there are some people who have another kind of blood cell with a different antigen. So it's like this, this kind of blood has this antigen on those cells, but then these people, or this blood, have a different antigen. And he named them A's, so A antigen, and B. And it turns out if you take some blood from somebody that has the B antigen and you put it with these white blood cells of the A blood, when they hit those protein antigens on the edges, it's not the A. And they immediately identify it as an invader. And they attack it. And they start, they don't, they don't say, hey, carry on. They s grab you and say, what are you doing? And it turns into something really bad. Well, he would find that there are actually, there's one, he named it A, and a B, so these two different kinds. And he found a third one. And he named it C originally. This third one had none of these antigens. Whoa, so that means that the third one, the C, could go into an A body or A blood. It could go into B, and it's popular everywhere. So that's pretty cool. However, the flip side of that is both A and B could not go into the, this one. And they would eventually name the C, they would name it blood type O. So there was A, B, and O. And then there's one more, and that is some people had blood cells, with the antigens of A and B. You got all the cards, okay? <laughs> you, you've got antigens for the B, so you can tell those blood cells, those white ones, were good, and you can go into this blood with those other bloods, white blood cells. So A, B, A, B, and O. Let's look at this um, picture here. So you can see the first one on here is O, the second one is A, and then B, and then A, B. 
And these are the four main groups that he discovered. And further uh, research was conducted, and they were able to figure out not only that different people had different types of blood, but how to figure out what type you had. Because then we could figure out what blood you needed if you needed blood. In fact, race car drivers, they would wear you, this is much later, after Carl, they would wear you sometimes a little patch with their blood type on it and, or have it painted on their car. So if something bad happened, it wasn't, wait, we can't give him blood yet. What kind of blood is he? And they have to do a bunch of testing. They, Get his arm, okay. He's AB and they, they knew what to do. Um, and now we have testing that can do it very quickly. Um, but this breakthrough seems maybe not too important if you've never had to worry about what blood type are you, I have no idea. You know, if you think about, I think the, re the re most recent study is that every two seconds in the US somebody is getting a blood transfusion, which is insane to think about that many people being impacted by this discovery, something that was this mystery until somebody broke through and figured it out. And you know, this, is, this may not be a big deal to you, but you know, there's some countries I've heard where this is one of the items on the dating site, okay? You got your height, you got your looks, your build, and your blood type, okay? <laughs> hey, she, oh, no, it's a no, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, uh, you know, there was this leader, he, um, somebody in an organization in Japan who had some things come out that weren't very good, and he was kind of having to account for it. And he said, well, also, I don't have a very good blood type. The reporters were like, oh. <laughs> so you can just use that, I guess, you know, if something bad happens. Oh, that blood. You know, but, or you can be positive about your blood, okay? And when somebody says, hey, you did a good job on that, you can just say, I've got good blood. <laughs> so remember, we, we, are, we are all one human race, but what type are we? There are different types of the blood inside, so. And now, introducing Roger Billings. My planet. All Solid that gold. gold. I told you, didn't I? I warned everybody. I like it. How you doing? How'd they know? <laughs> so, do you have good blood? I have good blood. That's good. Yeah. I'm not sure I have blood. <laughs> I mean, do all uh, planets have blood? We have to have something. Okay. The different colors, right? Yes. Ah, okay, good. Well, you know, uh, it seems like these guys just get wilder and wilder, no, no. don't they? <laughs> John says we talk to our things, and Tobias is doing He's blood. He's got the wave. <laughs> it really, really is interesting, though. The, these white blood cells um, are part of an important part of our immune system. They're kind of um, the, the people that go around through your body, the people, the cells that go around through your body and find infection and sickness and disease, if it wasn't for those white blood cells, we would be a lot less healthy. 
Mm-hmm. It's, it's really kind of amazing. And then when you, when you go to uh, the hospital to have surgery or you've been in an accident or something, you lost a lot of blood and they need to give you some, isn't it interesting with all of our technology, we don't really manufacture blood. We, we don't know how. We have to ask people if they'd please come and donate it. Mm-hmm. And it's very important. We use a lot. It saves a lot of lives. But you can't just have some machine, some chemistry lab, and, and make it. And I think that tells you a little bit about how complicated it is. And now we've, we've taken blood types from those basic ones he talked about, and they got into all of the different RH factors and different things. So when they actually sample your blood, when you're going to get in the hospital now, they look at a lot of things. And it, it's wonderful that they can do that. I think it's good stuff. Yes. All right, well, tonight we've got some business we need to get into right away. Uh, some of you remember that we are working against a challenge. <laughs> That's right. And the first part of doing a science project is coming up with a challenge that you want to tackle, right? And I'm starting early to get everybody ready for the science fair this upcoming year. And Science fair projects are more fun if you spend more time and really get into them. First thing you've got to do is come up with a challenge that you want to investigate. And of course, I like to encourage people to come up with challenges where you get to invent something. I like inventing. I like finding new technologies and figuring out how to make them help a lot of people. In fact, um, some of the students that are attending the Science Live with us tonight are part of my mentoring group. Mm -hmm. And I mentor students with the idea that some things they will see and be exposed to are going to inspire, motivate, and empower them to do things that maybe they wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And you know my story. I was very fortunate coming out of the university to be picked up by Bill Lear being mentored by him. And during that time, remember Bill Lear made the Learjet, which is an amazing little vehicle that shoots up over the storms and a lot of people get around that way. A little little pricey, but really fun. And I learned so much from him. And one of the, the main things that I learned and that I'd like to pass on is that before you can do a project, you have to decide what you want to do. And sometimes it's a problem you're going to solve. Very often, scientists will see some strange new property of matter, and then they will use that property to figure out how it could be useful. And then there's the others that see a problem, and they go looking for a solution. They say that. Uh, uh, need is the mother of invention. You've got to have a need for something. And so we need a challenge. Now, if you wanted a really good, hard challenge to solve in your science fair project, where would you go to get a challenge? Me? I go to my special friend, maybe from another planet, I'm not sure, Peche. <laughs> and so what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to come up with a challenge. Now, we're going to go 
on a little outing tonight. We're going to go into Area 51, and mm -hmm. uh, I, I want to follow up on a couple things we did last time. Remember we talked about how you measure temperature? We talked about thermocouples, thermistors, mm -hmm. and dissimilar metals. And I'd like to show you some of that so you know a little bit more about it, okay? okay. But then I would like to have Peugeot give us a challenge. A challenge would be some problem for us to use our science abilities to solve. Okay. And just imagine that your advisors, whoever they are, that are giving you problems would be giving it to you. And I'm going to show you how I'll take whatever challenge she gives me and I will figure out an experiment to see if I can solve it. Wow. Any questions about that? We good? <laughs> okay, then. Let's adjourn. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you that we already filmed this, so I kind of know how this is going to come out. And I won't say I'm completely proud of it. <laughs> but uh, we will go do it. Be. So now let's go to Area 51. Here we go. Okay, let's go. Well, tonight we're here in Area 51. This is the place I go when I want to do some inventing, when I want to make things for the science fair. Of course, now my fair is the big world. Yours, the science fair. I want to show you some things we talked about last week. This is some special thermocouple wire. It's chrome alumel. If you look, there are two different kinds of wire in the sheath. I'm going to cut a piece off and just show you how we can make a thermometer. You see these two pieces of wire? I'm going to strip this insulation off the other end. These are a piece of wire cutters. And as you can see, I got the sheath off. I'm going to take these two pieces of wire and twist them together. Since they're different kinds of wire, when they twist together like that, they become a battery. The two different kinds of metal conduct electricity. And the interesting thing is the amount not conduct, but they actually make electricity. But the amount of electricity they make is so small, you could never run even a small motor or LED. It's a micro, micro current. But the amount of electricity they make changes with temperature. So if we hook this up to a voltmeter, we can measure temperature. And I just happen to have a voltmeter right here with some probes. And I'm going to hook one of these wires to the black probe. I just wind it around here so that it will stay hooked on for me. Good. And the other one, I'm going to just hold on the yellow probe. Can you see how that is? Now, if you look, there is a temperature there, or excuse me, a voltage which goes temperature, and right now it just happens to be reading out in degrees Fahrenheit. So it says it's 71 degrees in here, which is pretty neat. Now, this is a little gizmo I have, which blows out hot air when I turn it on. I'm going to turn it on. So now it's blowing hot air. Now, I want you to watch this meter when I blow hot air. Can you see the meter okay? I'm going to blow hot air onto this, and look how it's changing. So now the temperature's clear up to 119 degrees. Now it's cooling back down to 100, look, 97, do it again. So you see how that works? This little device is generating electricity, a very small amount, but it's enough to measure temperatures. And scientists use little probes like this in their experiments to be able to find out what's going on. Now, another thing we talked about last time 
is thermistors. And I just happen to have a thermistor. This is one little tiny thermistor, well in front of the white here. A thermistor is a resistor, which means it's something that resists the flow of electricity, and the amount of resistance changes with temperature. So this is another way to measure temperature. I'm gonna switch my meter over to ohms, which means what it's doing now is putting electricity out one probe and bring it back in the other. And if I hook this up to my sensor, my probe again, by wrapping it around, and I hope you can see that little teeny thermistor there, and I'll hook the other side up to the other probe. I'm gonna hold it again, like so. We should be able to measure the resistance of this resistor at room temperature. And it says the resistance is 8,000 ohms, okay? Now what if we turn the heat back on again? What, what, now this time you'll be careful I don't burn my hands. But watch what happens to the resistance when this gets warm. You see that? The resistance is changing with the temperature. Wow. Can you see the difference? In this particular case, the resistance is bouncing around as I get it hotter and colder. And so, another neat way of being able to measure temperature, and you could do this if you wanted to in your experiment. These things only cost a few pennies. And thermocouples are not very expensive either, especially if you make your own thermocouple with a piece of wire like this. I ordered this off of the internet just as uh, uh, thermocouple wire. It's pretty neat. Now, here's another thing that's kind of interesting we talked about before. This is a piece of metal that I've coiled into a little, a little coil there. Can you see that? On one side is shiny with a gold color, and the other side shiny with a silver color. These are two different kinds of metal pushed together. And when metals get hot, they expand. But the interesting thing is different kinds of metal expand different amounts with a certain change in temperature. So if I were to heat this up, this little coil will coil down tighter. I could use this to make a thermostat. And in fact, this is a method used by many of the mechanical thermostats that are in use today. If you use a thermocoupler or a thermistor, you make an electronic thermostat. This gives you a way to make a mechanical one, and I'd like to show you how. First of all, you need to understand that if this gets hot, one piece of metal is going to expand faster, the, the gold-colored one, and so it will tighten this little coil. And so what I need is when it tightens, it'll turn a little bit. I need some way of turning my air conditioner on or off. And that's where this little gizmo comes into play. Where's my little gizmo? Oh, here it is. This is my little gizmo. I've got some batteries and a wire. And here I've got a little teeny silver tube. This is really small, and you'll have to look careful to see it. But inside this metal tube is a little round ball. The ball is made out of metal. And on the end of the tube are two wires that are sticking into this little can. So it's like a, a miniature cup with a ball inside and two wires sticking in. Interestingly, if I tilt this so the ball 
flows down to the bottom, it touches the wires and turns on the light. Now watch when I tilt it back. So just by tilting it, I can turn this on and off. There's another way they do this without a ball that you ought to know about. You remember the metal called mercury? Mercury is a metal that is a liquid right at the temperature of the room. And they put mercury inside these little tubes. And when the mercury, which is a liquid, but it's made out of metal, when it goes down to the wires, it turns on the light. And when it rolls away, it turns it off. A lot of thermostats use a mercury switch. And you can see why. Now let's see if we can mount this thing to the coil so that we can uh, actually turn the power on and off. Okay, I'm ready to attach this little switch to our dissimilar metal coil. This is a piece of, uh, of shrink tube. It's plastic, and when it gets hot, it shrinks. I'm gonna try to use this to hold this little switch onto our coil. So put it on here, put it around the coil. That's good. This is a needle trick. Now I'm gonna take my, my little coil and stick it inside the hole if I can get it in there. And of course I can. Okay, so if you can see that, I've now got it sticking through there. If I could just make it tight. And that's where I get out my heating gun again and let it get warm here. And as this gets hot, I'm gonna shrink down this shrink tube like so. And it's going to make this thing stay right on here, I hope. Okay, you can see now it tightened in, it goes on there, shrink tubing, neat stuff. Okay, so now I've got our, our coil, which is made out of two different kinds of metal that are fused together. And I've got them held by these vice grip pliers, the kind that just grab something and hold it. And notice now, whoops, get my pencil out of the way. As I turn this at just the right place, the ball rolls down and touches the metal. So as I turn it back and forth, it'll turn that light on and off. I'm gonna use this little uh, other tool as a brace I'm going to try and get this just barely where it doesn't come on so that just a slight amount of movement will make it switch on. Now, question is, if I apply a heat to this coil, will it tighten up and turn far enough to turn on that switch? It would be like a thermostat in a house. And right now, the air is just right. We're comfortable. So the air conditioner is turned off. But as it gets warmer, this coil would tighten up and would turn on the power. In this case, it's going to turn on the blue light. But if it was our house, it would turn on our air conditioner. Shall we see if we can make it work? Okay, here comes a little bit of heat. Let's see if we can get some air conditioning here. Now watch and see if you can see it start to turn. And look at that. We have air conditioning. So we have made our own thermostat. Remember, somebody invented this, and homes all over the world have enjoyed it. Now, as the air starts to get a little bit uh, <clears throat> cooler again, the air conditioner will turn off, and we'll see that light go off. But as you can see, it's going to take a second for it to cool, and I don't think we'll wait for it. But you see how it's done. 
Okay, so I want to show a little bit more about how metals expand when they get hot. It's interesting, they literally get longer. When some of the very high-speed supersonic airplanes are flying, just going through the air as fast as they do, it gets hot and the plane actually gets longer because that's what metal does. Let's see if we can see this effect for ourselves. This is a can of alcohol that we can use as a source of heat. Oh, it's working. So we have a little flame there, it's hard to see. But I'm gonna take this ball and I want you to watch here. And can you see how easy it is for me to put the ball through the ring? That's because the ball is smaller than the opening, okay? But what if I were to put this ball on top of this flame and cook it like a marshmallow? That's gonna have to go for a minute. I don't think that's long enough yet, but let's see. Nope, still smaller, goes right through. But what if we keep cooking this? You know, when you're cooking marshmallows, you don't want to get them too hot or they burn. Of course, I think Peugeot likes them burn, so that's okay for her. Okay, I think it's starting to get a little warmer. Still goes right through, doesn't it? It's a ball that's got quite a bit of weight because it's solid, so it's taken a few seconds for it to get hot enough. Now, if my hypothesis is correct, as this ball all gets warmed up, it's gonna get bigger. In fact, it'll get so much bigger, it won't go through this ring anymore. And I think we're probably getting pretty close. Oh, look, I can still do it. Maybe my hypothesis is wrong. What do you think? <laughs> it's interesting to remember that most scientific experiments don't work, especially don't work the first time. But hopefully this one will work eventually. Oh, look at that. Now the ring is getting too big and it I mean, excuse me, the ball is getting bigger than the ring and it won't go through. I'm gonna get it just a little bit hotter. Now let's see. See, it definitely won't go through there. Can you see that? Now it's bigger. Now if I let this cool down, pretty soon it'll be small enough and it'll go right back through, but that'll take a little while. So when metals get hot, they expand and different metals expand different amounts. By putting two different kinds of metal together, when they heat, it makes it bend because one gets longer more than the other one. And that's what made that coil wind in tighter because the outer metal was expanding more and pushing against the other one. Okay, so here we are mm -hmm. in Area 52. Fun. This is right next to Area 51. <laughs> and today we're going to be doing a brainstorm. Now, brainstorm is when Peugeot comes up with a problem or a challenge. Mm -hmm. And we're going to use our scientific method to be able to solve it. So what is the challenge you have for us tonight? Is being able to pollinate indoors. How are you going to do that? Pollinate what? Pollinate plants. Pollinate plants indoors. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about that for a minute. I just happen to have some plants, right? Plants. Yeah, these are little flowers. 
and they're the kind that you don't have to water. <laughs> I don't want you to just pretend they're the okay. real kind, okay? I can do that. So the way that it works is if you want flowers, plants, vegetables, and things mm -hmm. to reproduce, then you need to be able to take the pollen out of one place on the plant and put it in another. Right. Okay? In nature, this is done by bees, mm -hmm. honeybees, bumblebees, yeah. things like that. Mm -hmm. But if we're going to grow, grow plants indoors, especially vegetables indoors, we may not have a lot of bees in there. Yeah. So we need another way to pollinate. And your brainstorm challenge for us tonight is to figure out how to pollinate these plants without any bees, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Did you figure it out? Here we go. First of all, I'm gonna put on my brainstorm glasses. Oh, I love it. Wow, I've never seen those. All right, scientific method. Da, 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 da. All right, I've got some things here we're gonna use. Love it. First of all, I'd like to show you this. What this is, is an ultraviolet light with glue in it. That'll okay. be our glue gun. I also have a motor mm -hmm. with a battery okay. mm -hmm, and a switch. Uh -huh. And I also have some clay. Okay. Now, I want you to watch carefully as I assemble these scientific ingredients into the brainstorm <laughs> solution. about ready okay all we need to do now is calibrate it <clears throat> calibrate it these are the calibrators oh wow okay. okay see these are the I call them the bees <laughs> the bees these are the bees and we'll just kind of calibrate them perfect now <clears throat> let me take off my brainstorm glasses okay and this is where <clears throat> I like to have my press conference Okay. Ladies and gentlemen of the press, <clears throat> as you know, there have been many people complaining about the problem of pollinating plants growing indoors because there's no bees indoors, <laughs> all right? right? So we have created this yellow bee indoor plant pollinator. And what this will do is it'll take the pollen from the plants and mix it so the plants will grow strong and healthy. And as you can see, it's battery operated and it has a little switch that turns it off and on. So the electricity falls from this battery down through, if you push the switch, it turns it on, runs back up to this motor, which activates the pollinator and makes these plants grow. And if this works as planned, these plants will probably even get taller while we're watching. Okay, so please, Put on your safety glasses. <laughs> Thank you. Good. Because we're now ready to go into the experimental phase. Okay? <clears throat> As the originator of this great problem, would you like to be the one to hold the switch down while we pawn these plants? And please watch them grow while you do it. Okay? Okay. Hold it down. <laughs> Look at that. Oh, oh, oh. I'm beating them up. Okay, for our next invention, we would definitely like to go back into the auditorium. <laughs>
I told you I wasn't necessarily proud of that. <laughs> I kind of beat those little plants up. <laughs> you know, we oh. asked about this, and we got a lot of good ideas. We did, Most for real. of them are little <laughs> drones the size of a bee. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be neat? A lot of different ways to pollinate plants. That would be neat. And it is a really significant problem that needs to be solved. In commercial greenhouses, you can buy a box, a cardboard box. When you get it, there's a little piece of tape you take off the door, a little hole, and out comes bumblebees. And they use bumblebees to pollinate the plants because bumblebees are too heavy to fly. That's they what are. They're really bumble. heavy. Oh. And so when they do fly, they have to flap their wings really fast, which blows all the pollen around and makes them really good pollinators. Now, do they have stingers? Hmm. That could be a problem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay? So anyway, um, I have to just give you an aside uh, note on this. Okay. The very same day that I was working on this solution, that to the problem Peugeot came up with. In my own garden at home, I found a natural pollinator. Yeah? Yeah. I'd like to show you. Okay. This is live just day before yesterday in the garden. Can you see it there? I like that pollinator. That is a giant uh, swallowtail butterfly. That particular variety, by the way, is the largest uh, butterfly in North America. It's oh. very beautiful, isn't it? It is. And if you notice, can we play that one more time? If you notice, the butterfly actually flies around between these different flowers. And it has a little magic straw. It's magic because the straw curls up until it gets to the flower. And then the straw straightens out and it sticks it down into the flower to drink nectar. And while it's drinking that nice, sweet nectar, which is why it does all this, you have to pay butterflies to do this. <laughs> then it's moving the pollen around, and that's how they get pollinated. Some of the students wrote in and suggested that an ideal way to pollinate plants indoors would be with butterflies. Mm -hmm. And one of the nice things about butterflies is they don't sting. Yeah. And they're also very, very beautiful. Now, in the caterpillar stage, they may... Uh, kind of scary, some of them. Yeah, some of the caterpillars. <laughs> but they're amazing. And butterflies are a wonderful thing. We, we need to study that some more. But there's a problem you can look at. More important, though, than this problem is the concept of coming up with a question or a problem that you want to solve. And I'm going to encourage you to think of a problem that you can solve using the scientific method. And what's the scientific method? Come up with a hypothesis. That's an idea that you think might solve the problem. And then figuring out an experiment you could build to test your hypothesis. And then building it and trying it. And then coming up with another hypothesis. <laughs> and another and another until you finally find one that works. That's kind of neat, isn't it? That is the scientific method. What do you think? It's really fun. Mm -hmm. One of your students was very proud that you didn't get upset when the, your experiment didn't work. <laughs> I wasn't mad at her. <laughs> and he said he's working on that, and his, his mother calls it a growth mindset. 
keep that positive attitude. And that's not. right. Well, <laughs> you think I ruined it? I pushed well, those flowers were pretty upset. <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine the pollen coming out when they're getting whacked. <laughs> Almost lost when she says, I'm beating them. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's really kind of fun to think of the things you can do with science. It is. And you know, um, some of you may have learned some things from that little experiment that you didn't realize because you saw a battery, you saw a little motor, and you saw a switch. And you figured out how you could wire up the battery so it goes through the switch and then to the motor and back to the battery. And that is giving you the basic circuit information that you need to build a circuit. And then when you go take the STEM course, where we get into electronics, mm -hmm. then you're going to learn all about this stuff. And the more knowledge that you gain from these kind of things, the more kind of things you can do. Technology is kind of like your toolbox to build a solution to the problem you're trying to solve. Me, I'm always on the lookout for some neat new technology mm -hmm. and something I can do with it. I wonder if anyone noticed the UV glue. Remember I showed you that at the beginning? And then later I used the hot glue gun? Some of you probably caught me on that. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, that UV glue is really neat because it's just runny glue. You put it down and then you spray the UV light on it and it makes the glue go hard. It doesn't get hard until you spray the UV light on it. It's a neat, neat thing. Unfortunately though, my switch was covering where the glue was and it was taking forever to set up. And so I had to change my strategy and I went and got a hot glue gun. <laughs> which well, it worked. Didn't it? Force. A hot glue gun, just think how that works. You get a, a long tube of glue and you stick it in a gun that just heats it. When that glue melts, it becomes runny, so you can put parts together, and when it cools, it becomes hard again. Hot glue guns are really neat. And most of them are in two temperatures, low and high temperature. And the high temperature is good for certain things, low temperature is good for another. Every time you learn about a new technology like that, there's something more you can do. What's the low temperature good for? Good for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is something. <laughs> Actually, if you look on the, the bag of the glue sticks, mm -hmm. they tell you which one you'd use for cloth, which one oh. you'd use for things. But in general, the, the rule of thumb is if it's something that will melt where you don't want it to get too hot, then you want the lower temperature. But usually, the hotter one is a little stronger and usually doesn't get quite as runny. So you have to pick the one for your, for your project and the glue thing to say that right now. Okay. So one of your students thinks that we could use ultrasound to pollinate. So you put the plants on ultrasound and it shakes the pollen out of them. Interesting. Ultrasound. That's very high frequency sound. And interestingly, um, that person may be on to something. Uh, they're, how do you make high frequency sound? Uh, you can do it with a dog whistle. Mm -hmm. A dog whistle is made to make a noise at such a high whistle frequency that the human ear can't hear it, but it's low enough the dogs can hear it. So you blow the whistle and it looks like you're and, and the dogs come running because they can hear that high frequency. But the real, real high frequencies are made with a piezoelectric crystal. 
And that's kind of an interesting technology. A piezoelectric crystal is a rock, a little piece of quartzite, or quartz. You find a little rock out somewhere by the stream or something, you look at it and you can see through it, it's kind of clear, it's probably quartz. And if you slice off a little teeny piece of quartz and hook wires up to it and run a power through it, it makes the quartz crystal vibrate. And that's how quartz watch works. You have a little piece of quartz and they're vibrating and you count how many times it vibrates and when it's been enough times, then it's been a second. And that's how you make the clock work. But you can make it vibrate at the right, and by the way, if it's not bright, vibrating at the right frequency, you can tune the frequency by grinding off a little bit of the stone. The smaller it is, the faster it vibrates. So you can make it vibrate at just the right speed to make ultrasonic sounds that are too high pitch for us to hear. We making sense so far? Now, if you just took that and shot it around the room at the plants, I don't know that it would cause a big enough disturbance to make the pollen go flying. If you took a, just a regular speaker, that makes sound waves too, but now they're down in the frequency we can hear. We call it audible sound because we can hear it. And if you pass that around, the plants could maybe hear it if they have ears or petals, <laughs> but it wouldn't make the pollen fly up, would it? But this student might have a real interesting idea if they study it just a little more because if you took two piezoelectric crystals, and by the way, you can just buy those on the internet. If you know piezoelectric crystals, they're pretty neat. We use them in our robots, don't we? But if you took two of those crystals and plugged them in and made them on, and then you, you moved them around together, when the two waves cross each other, they can create what's called a beep frequency. And I think you might be able to make a big enough interference that it would actually pop up some pollen. It'd be an interesting experiment to try. I haven't tried that yet. And if I do try it, I'm not gonna do it on camera. <laughs> tell you that. At least but not it, with me. It is really interesting. Remember, <laughs> ultrasound is such a high pitch that the human ear can't hear it at all. It is interesting. And it can get so high that uh, not even dogs can hear it. And that's the kind of sound that bats use when they're sending out their sonar. It's a high fre frequency sound, but they can hear it. And that's how they can tell if there's an object because the sound bounces back, so it's kind of neat. Well, if you take two of these very, very high frequency piezoelectric crystals and you shoot them across the room so someone is hit by those waves, they can't hear them. They can't even tell they're being hit by them. But if one is just a tiny bit frequency higher than the other, and you shoot them together, when they converge, the two waves react with each other and create an interference wave that the person can, can hear. And I know a little bit about this because we have been doing some experiments, actually for a few years now, in area 51 on trying to make a sound, I call them sound cannons, mm -hmm. with the idea that we could put them in a, in a, a cellus classroom display so the sound come up and one student could hear it because it'd be creating an interference wave, but nobody else could hear it. That'd, That'd be nice because nice, then we wouldn't have to wear headphones. 
headphones are kind of nice, but uh, we always worry about them getting broken, and, and you also don't want to spread any germs if you're sharing them, so you have to wipe them off and stuff. Plus, it's just cool. It is, and it's one of those problems, yeah. and maybe one of our students are going to figure that out for us, because I think the day's coming when we're going to be able to make interference sounds work so just one person can hear it. There is a technology that uh, we didn't invent, but we, we've been trying it out. And it's where they take a dome of plastic and they put a little speaker right in the middle and it shoots the sound up to the dome and the dome's shaped like a parabola for the, those of you that have been taking algebra or geometry. And so all of the sound that hits the dome focuses down to one point. And so if you shoot that sound up towards the dome and you hang it up and someone is sitting underneath it or walks underneath it, when you're right under it, you can hear perfectly. And if you go just one step, any direction, the sound goes away completely. That's kind of neat. The only problem with that for a cellist is we haven't figured out how to hang those big domes. Maybe in the electronic classroom. That would be neat. But those are the kind of problems we're always trying to solve. And you know, when you find something like that, and you finally get it to work, you're probably going to have to try it a lot of times. And you, you're just sure you got it, and then you try it with some real students, and you find out mm, what you didn't think about. <laughs> yeah. And that's what makes science so challenging and exciting and rewarding when you finally achieve mm -hmm. success. All right, well, everybody, keep your plants pollinated <laughs> by hand for now. Some people do it with a little brush. Uh, some people do it with a little brother. Just give him a brush and let him do it for you. But uh, thank you for joining us, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Bye-bye. Well, thank you all for joining us this week. We'll see you next week. Have a great night.